You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Katie Burke. Today on the show, we have John Sullivan. John is a sporting art and waterfowl collector and uh, historian. Am I right in that you grew up in, did you grow up in Falston, Maryland? Or do you just live there now, John? I grew up in Falston, Maryland in the center of beautiful Harford County and uh, spent my entire lifetime. I've moved approximately two miles from the home where I was born. Well, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you here today. Glad to be here. All right. So let's talk about, so you're from, so you grew up in Falston, Maryland and you're from that, you know, the area of the Chesapeake Bay, and it's so rich in waterfowling history and tradition. So how did growing up in that area of the country inspire you to become the collector and historian you are today? My parents had a pair of historic decoys that sat in their living room from the time I was born, probably. And uh, I started moving them from the fireplace hearth up to my bedroom at quite a young age. And at probably age 10 or 12, my my maternal grandmother gave me my very own decoy. And it became the focal point of my bedroom. Uh, when my father was painting the shutters on the house, that wonderful shutter green that all the shutters in this part of the country were painted, I painted the decoy shutter green so it would match my uh, cowboy-themed wallpaper, which was green. And when I was about 16 years old, I realized that it wasn't such a good idea to have that um, dark green paint on that old decoy and uh, I took the paint off of it and it retained uh, its position in my bedroom as the focal point and years later in carrying the decoy around after I started accumulating others I was determined who made it it was made over in uh, the Cecil County area of Maryland by a carver named Benjamin Dye uh, one of the earliest carvers from this region and uh, it had the letter H carved in the bottom of that decoy, which was from the rig of Jess Heisler from Charlestown in Cecil County, Maryland. And uh, later, I accumulated other decoys by uh, Ben Dye with the Heisler brand on the bottom. And um, then lo and behold, uh, maybe another 20 years passed by and I acquired his sink box. The sink box had been stored in the, in the Heisler garage up in a loft for many years and now it resides in my home and is filled with decoys from that particular rig and other rigs uh, that were used on the Susquehanna Flats. Perhaps some listeners, uh, I'm sure most of your uh, podcast listeners recognize what a, uh, a rig of decoys was, but in the, uh, the on the Susquehanna Flats, the upper Chesapeake Bay, some of these rigs uh, that you use around the sink box might have two or 300 decoys in them. So the, the decoy um, historic decoys in this area, there was 
thousands of them, literally to pick from. And I started doing that at a young age, very young age. Fortunate in my collecting career that one of the preeminent carvers in the region, uh, Madison Mitchell, son worked alongside me in the county office building in the county seat and uh, i was buying mitchell decoys in those days in the in the 60s for uh, the duck decoys were six dollars a piece full-size canada geese were uh, eight dollars a piece and the full-size swan were a hundred dollars a piece and uh, i had to hide the swan when i come when i brought them home um, but we would meet every morning uh, every Monday morning on the parking lot and he'd bring his county vehicle next to mine and uh, I'd have a little bit of cash and he'd have a trunk load of decoys for me. That's how the, the accumulation started. I probably have a thousand here in the house. And um, at some point, uh, young Mr. Mitchell realized that I would pay a couple dollars more for uh, old decoys than I would for his father's uh, new decoys. So when rigs of decoys would go into Mr. Mitchell's shop to be uh, repainted. Uh, Mr. Mitchell would switch them out and I would get the old ones and the hunter who didn't really care would get brand new Madison Mitchell decoys. I think I got the better end of the deal because I've kept all the old ones. I think you did. Yeah. So I have, do you have this quote I read the other day that you wrote to Camus back and I just loved it. So I want to read it real quick. So hopefully I don't embarrass you. It says, some of us love history and long for days gone by. History is the core of our very fiber. It is all of the ingredients of our past that makes us who we are today. And I love that. And as a historian, it kind of really spoke to me. What do you think it is, um, before we get back to you, what it is about certain people that are drawn to the past in this way and kind of make it a part of us? What is your What is your thought on that? It recently came to me exactly what, what that is, Katie. And uh, that my connection to the past, um, I, I'm considered now a time traveler because I long for those days. You know, the, there's certain aromas from those days that linger in my head when I would go into a decoy shop in Haverty Grace when, they, when an old-time decoy maker would be turning his um, white pine bodies and carving his cedar heads, that the smell of that lingers with me and draws me back to days long since gone by that um, you know, a lot of the modern waterfowlers that are using the plastic decoys or styrofoam decoys or shells or whatever the modern material is, um, they don't have that connection. I mean, it's a it's an earthiness. It's an aroma that just sticks with me and, and, and I can instantly recall it. But it, it does. It puts me back into those days. Um, my family were not great waterfowlers, but they were sportsmen and they were hunters. You know, my, my, my aunt was the first person to, to put a shotgun up to my shoulder and teach me how to shoot a shotgun. And looking back in these, these logs and journals that I have, when I, when I find these lady shooters being invited to these gunning clubs up here by their husbands or, or fiancés were, were invited to go out shooting you know, I have that connection from my from my family. We had a um, the, the smokehouse on, on our farm property in Falston uh, was also the place where my grandfather loaded his um, shotgun shells. And you know that smell. You know, anytime I'm around gunpowder, I'm I'm back into that that shed as as a youngster. And uh, I've been extremely fortunate in in my life, and I've taken a lot of abuse and joking about this because. 
I grew up in, in you know in this historic home in Falston, and I immediately find myself as a youngster exploring what was up in the attic. And it was in the attic of that house that I found my grandfather's shotgun. I have it to this day. And it, was, it wasn't an expensive shot, shot, shotgun. It was called the interchangeable. And it had, had a, two sets of barrels, which could be switched. And in my father's youth, he had carved his initials onto the stock of the shotgun. And you know, we, we share the same name. So I, I didn't have to, as a youngster, I didn't have to um, carve my own initials in there because they duplicated others. But the times have changed so much. And I remember uh, getting on the school bus with that shotgun and taking it in for show and tell. And uh, on May Day, I posed as Daniel Boone and paraded around the Maypole carrying my grandfather's shotgun. Today, the whole school would be shut down. Times have changed, Katie. They have. I used to do the same. I would like go turkey hunting in the morning and have my Shotgun in the back of my car while I went to class. And that was fine in Mississippi. <laughs> so, but not anymore. Yeah, it is. It's true. Like this, you talk about the smells like I have. There are certain smells that take me back to the duck blind as a kid with my dad and things like that. You know, one thing that I'm jealous of you as that where you lived and became a collector and you started so young is you got to really be with a lot of these carvers um, that aren't around today. And what kind of influence and impact has that made on you and, and change your tra- trajectory? Well, you know, they car- they try to carry on the same tradition and, and some of the smells are the same, but, you know, it, it, it took me to a different place than so many of modern day collectors have ever been. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of collectors out there today that um, consider uh, when when they buy what they could term to be the best, it's an investment to them. And um, I've never considered anything that's in my house or in, in my, I, I don't call it a man cave because the whole house is essentially a man cave, but I don't consider it an investment. It's just the stuff I love. And and there's not a day go by that goes by that I don't handle these things and look at them. The, the other thing, Katie, that I've been extremely fortunate in in addition to knowing these old-time carvers and old-time gunners as well was having access to primary source information and um, many of the writers today rely solely on the internet and because a lot of the old timers that they would at one time a writer would have interviewed these people they're gone now so they rely on the internet and they pull up Ancestry Records, Ancestry.com, or one of those w- websites, or the census records. And in their writing, they might go back to the seventh or eighth great grandfather of this particular carver, which really means very little to most readers. They're more anxious you know, to know what that carver did. But I was able to, to interview the, the carvers and inter- interview these old time waterfowlers and then travel to the areas where they had gunned. Uh, Unfortunately, in this part of the uh, the county that I'm in, the United States Army took so much of this property in uh, 1918 when they built the Aberdeen Proving Ground and the Edgewood Arsenal, and um, the gunning clubs left the area. Most of them moved south. If they if they maintained the club, they went to North Carolina or the Currituck Sound. But uh, I've been to those areas, you know, uh, with approval of the United States Army and seen the sites of where these wonderful clubs once were. And, uh, you know, the 
the the amount of waterfowl that you would would see even in in these days is, is just amazing and i can't imagine what it would have been you know before the turn of uh, into the 1900s you know the early earliest gunning club uh, on, uh up in this region that, that i've dated was uh in 1819 at, at Maxwell's Point, and that became the um, the county home of the Cadwalder family. And uh, they, you know, at, at the end of the time before the, the army got it, they had uh, over 7,000 acres of, of waterfront property on what was called the gunpowder neck of Harford County, where the Edgewood Arsenal was constructed. And they crossed over into Baltimore County, and they also owned where Carroll's Island Ducking Club was, one of the, the most famous clubs on the upper Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, so what was it? Because as you mentioned before this, it, the Chesapeake Bay, this area, especially this part of the, like this land that you're talking about, hosted some of the most affluent uh, club gunning clubs in the country. What was it about the habitat there, the ducks there, and the location of it that drew these people to that part of the country? Well, if you can name you know, one specific uh, fowl, would have been the canvasback duck, and the canvasback duck, uh, you know, was it was world famous, literally, because uh, the, there's records of, of shipping shipping canvasbacks uh, to Great Britain, you know, packing them in ice and shipping them overseas. Um, but the um, the wild celery uh, that grew on the Susquehanna Flats brought the uh, the canvasbacks and, and the redheads, ballpates and uh, and sculpt of the area, but the canvasback would, would have been the most famous, and and they they were an Epicurean's delight, and uh, they were sold in all the markets. The um, the advent of the, the rail system up and down the East Coast, uh, their their popularity really increased when you could you know barrel them up and ship them to New York or Philadelphia, and that brought the hunters here. And these the wealthy sports were in direct competition with the, the market hunters who were, were selling the fowl to, you know, to the markets. Uh, most recently, uh, I, my most re- recent writing on um, a gunning club was the Eldon Ducking Club, which was on the Spasutia Narrows, right across from Spasutia Island outside of Harvey Grace. And the members all came from New York or New Jersey. And uh, some of them held... Uh, duplicate memberships in the Spasucci Island Rod and Gun Club and the Eldon Ducking Club. Um, so many of these early clubs established very strict um, conservation protocol for how many fowl could be taken and the, the use of blinds and uh, restricting uh, the number of guests that a, a specific member could bring to the blind and drawing for blinds, but uh, m- most particular, limiting the uh, the number of fowl before conservation uh, laws were put into place. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. So this is something I'm just I'm curious about because the these the hunting practices in this area are so like indicative to this area, especially like and having a museum with some of these artifacts and stuff in it. You know, people ask, and I just am not as knowledgeable as I would like to be. But what was it about like this area where they had you know 
the pass shooting, the bar shooting, duck tolling, um, sink boxes. Why were all, why did everything kind of, and did it, I'm pretty sure it birthed out of this area, but what was it about this area that kind of brought all that about? I, I would, you know, attribute it to, you know, primarily to the, the canvas back ducks and, and it being the, you know, the king of fowl, uh, as deemed by these early, uh, hunters, but, um, you talked about the different methods employed and um, what changed it forever was the advent of the automatic shotgun. When you, when you think of a, a gentleman shooting out of a, out of a sink box and he's shooting a muzzle loading gun and the efforts that would take to get his powder and shot down that barrel. And then we come along with a breech loader where if he'd have two shotguns with him, he's going to have four shots before um, he has to reload. But then when, uh, John Browning patented the automatic shotgun. Um, it changed everything, and that uh, led to the uh, legislation which outlawed the sink box in in, uh, in 1935. Maryland uh, was one of the forerunners for uh, for conservation uh, of fowl, and as early as um, 1832, the the first uh, legislation was passed which outlawed the use of big guns. And they never particularly describe a big gun other than uh, the fact that a, a gun that could not be conveniently fired from the shoulder was how they described a big gun. And what they were referring to was punt guns or, or swivel guns that would be used uh, in a sink box. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then the big guns, I, I still have a hard time fathoming them shooting, the bar shooting, shooting these big four-bore four, four guns. But when you read your books and your writings that they couldn't, like it wasn't just anyone who used those guns. You had to be a good shot to use those guns. Like, can you like explain that a little bit more? Because that's just, it's not super clear. You had to be a good shot and a pretty sizable individual. Um, Ferdinand Latrobe, who was one of the principal members of the Carroll's Island Ducking Club, was famous for the use of his four-bore shotgun. And, um, you know, he was a, probably a 230 pound man. And, you know, he's, he's making a lot of those direct overhead shots when they were shooting on the, uh, on the points from the bar. And, um, you know, otherwise it would be knocking him down a little bit with each shot. Yeah. I just, I mean, I just can't imagine. I mean, I cleaned them. We have them in the museum and, you know, they're 20 pounds. They're not, they're not little guns. And I just, yeah, it would have to be 230 pounds to shoot that thing um, but yeah it's crazy and I'm guessing you wouldn't do it would they not do it often it would just be you know they'd do it every like you know so I wouldn't do it every day I'm assuming I think it had a lot to how high high the fowl were, were flying a particular day and what what blind location you know they they drew at the morning drawing for the blinds All right okay that makes more sense yeah that that's clear so You've spent a lot of your spare time, like not just collecting and researching um, like all this, but you also spent a lot of your time as an advocate and educating people. Um, why do you think teaching people about this history um, and this, I guess, tradition is so important? I think it's important to teach um, novices, you know, about early conservation methods, that it's just not something that the state or the government came up in recent years, but they have to understand that, you know, uh, we were protecting our, our natural resources pretty early on in this country. Although, 
you know, people hear tales of, you know, of the, you know, the, the outlaw gunners and how many birds they shoot, you know, that was certainly the exception. It wasn't the rule particular in this area. You know, we the first area in the country to establish what was known as the ducking police. That was in 1872. And, you know, they're, their um the area that they patrolled was the, was the Susquehanna Flats and they established specific times uh when the sink box would be put in location it couldn't be before 5 a.m and you know they um they'd mark the location but uh, they got fined pretty severely and material and their gunning supplies confiscated by the ducking police um but uh to properly educate young people uh, that are novices to this and it is very important to, to stress the conservation methods that were in place and and get the facts straight for me because many times the, for some reason the tradition that uh, someone came up with the idea that they would they would load these big guns with uh, glass and and bent nails or whatever they had it was totally untrue that you know they were they used them to kill fowl, and they're going to treat it like they would any fine piece of equipment. You know, they're going to take care of it. They're going to clean it every day. You know, just not. You know, many times they, um, after they were outlawed, they the, the rumor has it that they would lower them into the water to hide them from the ducking police. Um, that was certainly the exception, and you know, they they treated it with a great deal of respect because it's how they were making their livelihood. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned how it's, it has been this like market hunting era has been romanticized in a way. And it wasn't, but at the same time, and we've talked about this before, but at the same time, you still had people conservation minded, especially in um, the more affluent clubs and things like they, they thought about the resource and the habitat it wasn't just about, you know, market hunters and club members were very different um, in where they came from and why they were doing it and had different motives behind it. Um, how, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how would the clubs view the market hunters in that time? Was was it a friendly relationship or what, what was that like between them? I don't think it was particularly friend, friendly. The, you know, records of the... Of the uh, Carroll's Island uh, Ducking Club, where they had gone out on their own and confiscated from market gunners the big gun. And they actually, I, I have a photograph where they where they would disassemble, break the big the, the punt gun up, you know, so it could never be used again. So I'm, I don't think the relationships were, were particularly good um, if if they're confiscating their you know what they're making a livelihood on. But, you know, most of the clubs record, you know, that they heard a big gunfire and the next day you, you, that would be the end of it because they they'd actually go and, you know, run them off. And there was a, a, a family, a, a Boyer family from Harford County that spent a couple of years trying to find the, uh, the, the market gunner that was gunning outside their shores on, on the Bush River neck. And they ultimately found him and his big gun was confiscated and um, taken to the Department of Interior where it was stored for decades in, in Washington, D.C. It's a, it's a rather famous case, but uh, 
they were able to uh, word of mouth. They they knew the location of most of these outlaw hunters and were able to uh, to have them put out of business. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, we were talking. I was talking to Dan Thiel actually on the podcast the you know not long ago, and we were talking about. Nash Buckingham and the American Wildfowlers. And one of the things in there that I think applies to this that I found really interesting, at the time when they were, you know, thinking about their what they were going to do and how they were going to put in these laws, one of the things they weren't going to do was really regulate the clubs because they found that um, the clubs were maintaining the habitat and they weren't as much of an issue on shooting so that in some of their first proposals, they weren't going to you know, um, police the clubs like they were other things. I just found that really interesting because as you talk about this, the clubs had their own rules. They they kind of enforced their own hunters. Like, what do you think about that? Do you know that about the American Wildfowlers? No, I'm not familiar with with that or particular organization, but I, I know for a fact, you know, because it's, uh, you know, written in, in my primary source information about, you know, what, what they would do to, uh, you know, control their own uh, natural areas that they were maintaining and, you know, building their blinds, maintaining shorelines, you know, before the rest of the world was thinking about maintaining shoreline and controlling erosion, even in early days. Yeah, that's so ahead of its time. It's it's really great. I don't want to like go without talking about this, um, but I'd love to hear you speak about your mentor, Captain Henry, and what that relation meant, relationship meant to you and how that, you know, affected your life. Could you speak about him a little bit? Henry and his family uh, uh, moved to Harford County and they lived, I guess, two miles from my childhood home. And although Henry was somewhat older, we, we had a great... Uh, affection for the Maryland Pennsylvania Railroad which was this delightful little steam line that, that ran right through the where we grew up and um, my grandfather had been the bridge and building foreman for that railroad from 1878 up into 1938 and the the access I always thought was better than anyone else would could have had because of my grandfather's association you know decade before I was born but uh Henry and I grew up, you know, loving that. And, you know, by the time I had my first BB gun, he had progressed to his first 22. And uh, he, when he got out of the service um, in the, in the uh, 60s, we became friends once again, uh, but this time about decoys. And uh, had uh, we would have what we call decoy round table. And we had them for decades where we'd sit down with a, a a few decoys and maybe bring a couple other uh, newer collectors in and, and we talk about the style of a, of, of a particular decoy maker. And uh, when, when I mentioned earlier my primary source information, one, one of the best days I recall with Henry, he had a home in East Newmarket, Maryland, down in Dorchester County. And when I was at one of his shed, which was just piled with decoys. And he reached down on the, from a shelf and uh, he had these unusual decoys with the fact that the um, there was a uh, cast iron ballast weight recessed into the underside of the decoy with initials on them. Uh, some of the, ne- the initials read ELB and some read TJH, which would not be a, the indication of the carver, but the indication of whose rig it was. And... Uh, I said, Henry, who, you know, what do you think this stands for? And neither one of us really know. And he said, oh, maybe that was uh, Ed Parson or 
maybe this was Tom uh, Hansen or something like that. And uh, about an, a year later, I was working in, in Harford County for the government, and um, they were cleaning out the attic of the Harford County Courthouse, doing, getting ready to do a major renovation. And the clerk of the court called me up and he says, we have some old records up here that are getting ready to go to the landfill, if you'd be interested in seeing them. And they were the assessment records from this county from 1896 and 1902. They were packed into wooden biscuit boxes. I drove my pickup truck over and I carried 16 wooden boxes filled with these records. And I hauled them home with me to save them from the landfill. And the first box that I picked up was from the uh, gunpowder neck and the Bush River neck of the county, indicating the district and the property owner's name. And I picked up this little, what was called an assessor's day book, where the assessor had gone out in the field, made notation. And inside on the, the, the back paper of, the, of this little journal, this handwritten journal, was the Bartlett and Hayward rig. 500 decoys and the men's name edward l bartlett and thomas j hayward and that was like the one of the cementing factors in my uh decoy relationship with henry that i went back and i said remember those decoys with the little iron pad let me show you something and i pulled out this little book i said here's the maker here's the not the maker but here's the owner of that rig these two gentlemen because it was just merely speculation. Someone would make a name up or speculate as to who it possibly could have been. And there in my hand, I had the fact. Here it is. And uh, I, th I think our relationship from that day forward with me having that access to, you know, who owned these many, many thousands of decoys that were used in that part of the county really helped our relationship. And it just got better through the years. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're lucky to have that job and that hobby and it just kind of all things aligned <laughs> we spent uh, you know we traveled to maine together for 20 years to to the decoy auctions and while the you know while the auctions were going on if there was nothing we were particularly interested in we would be uh, driving through the country roads of maine stopping in any one's property that uh, looked like they had anything old or interesting you know we had some great times. It was a wonderful relationship. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing. So you've had a lot of, um, we've done a lot of work with museums, uh, particularly in that area, the Havre de Grace Museum, Decoy Museum you mentioned, as well as the ward. And this is kind of a selfish question. But since you've played that role as a, um, as a, you know, someone that helps them and identifying different things and then, you know, just your roles in museums, what do you think... Now that we're going forward, we have more museums paying attention to decoys, um, not just these waterfowling museums, but some of the larger um, art museums as well. What do you think the role of museums in this in this is forward? Certainly to, to teach the history appropriately, you know, to, to tell them the importance of uh, of what this what the duck decoy meant uh, in this country that it's re it's really been recognized as truly the, a unique contribution to uh, Americana. You know, it was when, when you look at, you know, all the uh, the folk art that was created, you know, it's certainly at the very front of the list of true Americana. You know, that was a unique uh, piece of art, simply made us a, a tool for the hunter, but 
progressed past the, the tool stage into a, an artifact and a piece of art. And, um, you know, museums exhibiting them in, in the Maryland Historical Society, now known as the Maryland Center for History and Culture, has had an exhibit there of waterfowl uh, artifacts since the day it opened and one of the earliest historical societies in, in the country. And, and you know, the, put it first and foremost, when you go in there, I mean, that's where all, I was always attracted to. And, and now I'm a trustee of that organization. And I hope that we can do another exhibit. We did an exhibit there in 91 of Maryland's 100 Best Decoys, and I hope we can do another one. But, um, you know, people come uh, to the Haverty Grace Decoy Museum from all up and down the country. It's, you know, we, we keep a role there of where these people are from. And it's interesting. Uh, they'll, you know, I've had people walk in the door and say, is this a real museum or is this just a, a, a decoy of a museum? And I said, no, this is the decoy museum. <laughs> decoy of a museum. <laughs> I never thought about that. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So before we go, is there anything that you would like to add and anything that you'd like to say before we sign off? My experience with, with, with Ducks Unlimited has been truly a unique uh, experience in my lifetime and very important to me. And, you know, I, I remember seeing those uh, as, as a young man, those first uh, decoys, uh, decals rather on the, on the wind, rear windows of a pickup truck or a car down the road and think, how do I get one of those someday? And uh, a lot of these older gentlemen, waterfowlers, you know, I'd see their magazines and then I eventually, you know, got, took one of their magazines and applied for membership. And um, I started doing uh, exhibits at the local chapters of Ducks Unlimited up here back in the uh, in the early 1970s. And then much to my surprise and, and, and joys when I got the uh, proclamation from President uh, Hoyt in, 19, in uh, 2018 at an event at the Decor Museum. Total shock to my system where I was writing my contributions, but really an honor for me thinking uh, how how long that journey's been with Ducks Unlimited. Yeah, and you have things at the museum as well, and um, they're pretty popular, so <laughs> don't ask for them back, please. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, John, I could talk to you all day. I have a million questions, but um, we should probably wrap up. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Truly a delight to talk to you, and uh, I hope this works out. Thanks again to our guest, John Sullivan. Thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac, and thanks to you for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.